Okay, well, tonight we have a fun one. Uh, I tell you, we, um, as as I continue to work through uh, different aspects of church history, one of the one of the places that I am continually um, uh, interested in is all of the different documents that come down to us through history, uh, ones that have had enormous influence, some that should, some that shouldn't have, um, and in all ways, I find it fascinating just kind of the library that has come down to us through history. Um, tonight actually starts a kind of mini-series in these deep dives. Um, for the next couple of weeks, we are going to be working through uh, some of the massive uh, forgeries and um, lies, <laughs> there's no other way to put it, that the Western church used to design and create, a, create out of whole cloth its own power, and uh, especially that of the office of the papacy. So now a couple of words on this before I even get started, because um, I know there are there's a whole bevy of people who listen to this and uh, from all different walks of life. Um, my, my encouragement will be to you if, if these topics make you uncomfortable, um, just look to them for their historical, um, reality, uh, and, and consider, and if you want to know how your church specifically answers these questions, you're welcome to, uh, go look it up. Um, I'm not going to have anything in here that is overly debatable, um, these things have been known now for hundreds of years, um, and uh, there's a few of them, like, for instance, when I come to the Liber Pontificalis, uh, which I'll mention here in a few minutes, um, that I'm going to notate or, you know, kind of put in a an audio asterisk, if you will, uh, where I'm starting onto my own opinion on some of these things. Um, but neither here nor there. Um, some, of the, some of the massive uh, issues that happen in the Western church were by its own design. And there is a number of reasons, a number of forces why this became the case uh, in the West and not in the East. It is not because the East was more moral. It is not because the West was more immoral. Um, everyone is saint and sinner in these types of situations. And uh, a lot of what happens happens because of uh, opportunities. They happen because of circumstances. Things tend to align, and those that will, uh, will when opportunity presents, and if opportunity doesn't present, they won't. That doesn't necessarily make them more moral. It just makes them live at a different time. Um, when, we are, uh, when we are discussing things like this, obviously, um, I, I, I am teaching uh, on uh, Western church history in these specific episodes, the donation of Constantine, uh, the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, um, the pseudo-Samachian forgeries, uh, the Liber Pontificalis. Um, these are the next several episodes that uh, I've got planned out here. Um, when I'm teaching on these, I am not teaching on these removed. Obviously, I'm a Western Christian as well. Uh, I am Protestant. Uh, I am Reformed Baptist. I always lay out all my cards on the table because I think that that is only fair. Um, if somebody was teaching on Baptist history, for instance, and they were Eastern Orthodox, I would want to know that so that I could at least understand what um, what predilections they're coming with or what lenses they're using or even what prejudices they may have. 
Um, as for my relationship uh, to these forgeries uh, and to these things that were present in the uh, medieval church, um, I hate them. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any bones about that. I I do not like. Um, I, I enjoy studying things like this, but I hate that they're a reality. Um, it is, it is a frustrating aspect of the history of the church. And one reason why I am glad for the reformation, having separated out from advances of power and corruption that never should have ever entered the church at all. Um, it led to the Eastern churches leaving the West and then the West itself splitting out Christians from itself because nobody could handle this kind of stuff. Um, especially after the Renaissance came around and these things were determined after they had been taught as fact and reality for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, <clears throat> if you've never run into the donation of Constantine or the Isidorian Decretals or any of these things, you may look at what I'm saying and go, you know what, what on earth is even going on? I'm going to try to get you kind of up to speed, at least with a general uh, idea on this, um, and get you to the time period that we're at and then, um, and then catch you up to what's going on. So tonight, uh, the first like 15 minutes or so is going to be, uh, more or less a, uh, introduction to this idea of, uh, forgeries and what was going on in the Western Roman empire after it fell. Now, <clears throat> if you were schooled in the West, uh, such as I was, you would usually uh, be asked the question, when did the Roman Empire fall? And then you could give a variety of dates everywhere from 407 to 476 because uh, it was a gradual fall. It did not happen overnight. Um, 476 is the everything's done. The West is gone. Uh, there is no Roman Empire in the West. But if you study world history, <clears throat> I apologize. My cold from last week is still still around. Um, if you if you study world history, though, you know that the Roman Empire did not fall until 1453 uh, because it went to the east and it set up shop in Constantinople and had its centers there. Um, even after the Islamic expansions of the uh, 7th century, you still had significant uh, emperors. You had unbroken line of emperors. Uh, they're all the way uh, through their history. We usually in history would call that, at least in the West, the, the Byzantine Empire. But make no mistakes about it. That is the Roman Empire. Uh, they are Roman. If you ask them who they were, they would say they're Roman because they are Roman. Uh, the, the capital moved from Rome to Constantinople and it set up shop there for a thousand years. Uh, complete with the Senate, complete with the Emperor, complete with everything. So... Um, it really wasn't until the fall of Constantinople in 1453 that Rome itself actually fell. That was only less than 600 years ago. Um, in the West, we usually don't talk about it like that because we almost act as if the quote-unquote Eastern Roman Empire, which in reality is just the Roman Empire after the fall of the West, uh, we almost act as if it's unrelated to us, unrelated to anything else. And it's almost irrelevant from us. And um, in some ways, it kind of was because culturally we separated out from the East very early on. But then also theologically, those of you who have been through church history with me, you know that in 1054, the great schism between East and West occurred, which separated East and West theologically, ecclesiastically, um, bishoprics, everything. And while several attempts were made, there's been no unification now for a thousand years. 
uh, between East and West. That may change in the next hundred years. We'll, who knows? Um, you know, stranger things have happened. But uh, if you ask me, we've, we're so far past jumping the shark in church history that unification on those things um, could not, and I would actually even argue should not happen at this point, um, unless a great deal of revival happens first. Um, so let me <clears throat> set up the history of this. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, uh, power was up for grabs. We've discussed this at length in various uh, contexts. Um, when you do not any longer have a Senate, when you do not any longer have an emperor uh, that is present in the West, uh, the Germanic tribes take full advantage of this. Constantine, for all of the good stability he brought to the empire during his and his children's reigns, um, it really became problematic to move Rome or to move the capital of the empire to Constantinople. While that worked uh, for the east, it really did leave large sections of the west uh, up for grabs. And it's why you have within uh, within uh, 50 to 60 years, you start to have invasions of the Vandals and the uh, Ostrogoths, the Visigoths um, throughout the west and the fall of what we now know of places like Germany and, and France and Italy and Spain uh, to all of these Germanic kingdoms uh, really is owed not in any small part to the absence of governance from Rome and the moving of it to Constantinople, um, which is not exactly just a stone's throw away from Rome. It's pretty significant distance. Well, you can imagine at this time, then, you have a significant power gap. How do you manage or how do you handle uh, something of that magnitude? How do you handle the presence of something that uh, invades, that takes over, and then you have to have some kind of authority to make peace treaties? And you did have local rulers, and but those were small and insignificant in the West compared to what was going on in the East. Um, and they were never strong enough to stand up against these things. Well, I, I, this isn't a Roman history class, but it, it bears repeating that in the context of this, there, there had to be some kind of structure that held the West together because what was going to happen is nothing was going to hold it together, right? In the Eastern Roman Empire, they left Latin for Greek. Why? Because in the East, they spoke Greek. Everyone did. And so the legal language changed, the vernacular maintained Greek, Latin was dying away. And the church in the West, where Rome is, basically is the only one left standing with anything that reminds anyone of Rome. They had a Latin translation of the Bible. They had Latin as their church language. They had the uh, Constantinople Nicene Creed written again. Uh, in, in languages that they could speak, in languages that they could uh, carry on. But if Latin dies away, and if Rome dies away, then who is the Western Church? This becomes a, a deep identity crisis for the Church in Rome. Uh, and anyone who tries to lessen that really does not understand how significant it was that not only in, in the span of two generations... Did the capital move from Rome to Constantinople and then switch languages? But then the invasion of the Germanic kingdoms, you have an utter loss 
of a massive part of its own culture. And, and before you look at that and go, well, you know, it's no big deal. You're just a church. You'll just get on with the next culture. It's not that easy. Uh, it's not that easy. And nobody takes transitions like that easily, especially if they have been for many um, for uh, many years considered one of the centers of the church. Rome is all of a sudden cut off, uh, not not so much quickly and directly, but culturally and even as it becomes linguistically and semantically it starts to become distant from the east and the east has the other four centers of the church at least the at least the metropolitan centers of the church and that would be constantinople antioch jerusalem and alexandria egypt but in the west there's just one rome and as that separation goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the medieval era Rome begins to get a sense of itself, a sense that they are the only church that matters. They are the only center of theology and of ecclesiastical law. They are the only ones that matter. In fact, maybe it's, it's always been this way. In fact, to legitimize who we are, we are going to put together a series of documents that would establish this. Now, before you look at that and go, well, that just sounds fantastical. We know it to be fact now. But the problem was that at the beginning of all of this, uh, nobody knew what was going on. Except Rome. Rome was fully aware of what it was doing with regards of these things because they needed, and there was one reason or another, it was advantageous to them to make these stories up. Well, <clears throat> tonight uh, is the donation of Constantine, but before we look at that, this is a, this is part of a long history of other forgeries and what I'm going to call um, uh, exaggerations or emendations uh, that were prepared in order to establish the temporal and ecclesiastical authority of the Bishop of Rome. Now, that should not be passed over simply. When I say all of those words, I mean every single one of them. It was there to establish the temporal, meaning the uh, what we would call the secular authority uh, of the Pope, and the ecclesiastical authority of the Pope. The idea that the Pope himself is to be in charge not only of all things, but of all things throughout the church, everywhere, for all time, for everyone. Um, this is a, uh, a remarkable thing that was uh that was not only attempted but carried out uh it was carried around uh very forcefully and it was carried around very successfully um the first ones of this would be the samakian forgeries um and we will spend an entire evening on the samakian forgeries not tonight we're do we're doing it a little bit out of chronological order because the donation of constantine is just so well known uh, so that's why we're starting there. But uh, chronologically speaking, the Samachian forgeries, um, somewhere between 498 and about 510, uh, they are uh, fake letters and decrees from the early church, supposedly, that were actually written in the early 500s. Um, <coughs> and they have been proven false over the course of several hundreds of years uh, in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. Really, the uh, the onset of study and the Renaissance 
uh, and the Reformation uh, was able to definitively and decisively prove uh, with no meaningful argument to the contrary that these things, these claims, these stories, these letters, these decrees, these supposed creeds um, that had happened in the early church never actually were or were emendations or things specifically designed to bolster uh, the claim um, of, of Pope Symmachus. We'll, we'll deal with that uh, that night. Uh, another thing that was being written, uh, at least the first edition or the first set of the Liber Pontificalis, um, the first section, again, is historically unreliable. That That is a significant understatement, by the way. Um, it also uh, was written in the early 500s. There's all sorts of mythology about you know, maybe Hippolytus of Rome or Irenaeus or, um, or Jerome. Uh, all of it is grasping at straws and a desperate attempt to prove something that's not provable in any way. Uh, the first edition of the Liber Pontificalis, at least as, as far as for anything beyond just a list of popes, um, the the first thing past that is is uh, honestly in some places just simply laughable, and in other places historically just lies. Um, and so we will delve into that. And the thing is, is a lot of people will refer to these things. <clears throat> but they'll never actually sit down and read them. Um, we're going to go through some of it, and I want you to actually see some of this stuff because uh, hearing me say they're wrong or they're fake or whatever, it it has one effect, but there's a whole other effect to actually running into these things. So uh, I want you to be able to see that. Um, the first edition or the first section, the earliest 500 years, if you will, of the Liber Pontificalis is still considered reliable largely um, by Rome. Um, or at least by those who um, um, are trying to defend Rome and its claim to historical uh, legitimacy, which it does not have any of. Um, and I, I would, I would uh, beg to the contrary. Um, the, the first parts of the Liber Pontificalis are hagiographical in its best case and are just plain up stories uh, in its worst, or well, in its reality, but in its worst is just lies. Um, the, the third one here also on this list, the pseudo Isidorian decretals, uh, these ones, again, more letters, more decrees, more decisions of creeds that are there. Popes saying things that popes never said. Um, these were written in the eight hundreds, uh, again, proven false gradually from the 1500s, 1600s. When I say things are proven false gradually, I mean that certain terms, certain linguistic knowledges, certain um, philologies, these things were used to actually interact with, uh, the nature of the documents themselves. Um, and such studies took a long time. If you look at these things, the Samachian forgeries, right? Written in the early 500s. It took a thousand years to realize that something that was establishing the power of the papacy over and above other things was not true. That's a thousand years of uh, of input and of uh, of effect and all of these things. This is the problem, right? The Liber Pontificalis. It's been fifteen hundred years. There's still people that find the beginning of that legitimate. Um, it's been fifteen hundred years. It's not legitimate. Um, someday that will be admitted by others as well. But unfortunately, if if you give up the Liber Pontificalis, then you have to give up the myth that. Peter was the first bishop of Rome. 
um, which you're never going to have Rome ever give that up, even though there's no historical grounding for that whatsoever. Uh, in fact, there's quite historical stuff to the opposite, um, but that's a whole other discussion. The Pseudo-Zadorian Decretals, again, look at these dates. These ones are enormously influential, uh, very powerful, a uh, lot of stuff to them, and they were written in the 800s, and they took seven, 800 years to be demonstrably false. Um, this, this really, this really brings up a bigger question, right? Because when we're studying things like the donation of Constantine, we're not actually studying Constantine because he never did anything of the sort. Um, he never wrote this. This was not a decree of his, but when it was forged somewhere between 750 and 850, everyone considered it legitimate. And then it influenced canon law for 650 years. And even when we discovered that it was not legitimate, and not only not legitimate, it's not like it was wrong in its historical accuracy. No, completely and utterly fabricated. Forged. When it was discovered that, it was cast aside and set aside, but the influence it had over canon law was never undone. It was already, if you will say, baked into the cake. And there is no way to go backwards. You cannot just turn canon law back 700 years. It is already baked in. The, the understanding of the Pope and the power that he has and um, his... Um, I'm going to move me for just a second here. His influence and power in the church, especially in the West and across the entire um, uh, the entire world, is is something that is already a, a foregone conclusion. It's water under the bridge. And so this really becomes problematic. Uh, how do you deal with this? Well, how we deal with these things is how I'm going to deal with it tonight. And that is, what are we learning about the church in the seven and eight hundreds that would fabricate such things. What are we learning about the medieval church that has to depend on forgeries because there's nothing legitimate to its own history to prove the reality. And that's kind of where that last question on the screen comes from. If the Pope already had this authority, then why lie? Why forge history? If this is true history, why ever do anything like that? Why write the Samachian forgeries? Why why write the beginning of the Liber Pontificalis, which also borrows some of the Samachian forgeries uh, stories? Why why write the Pseudo Isidorian Decretals? Why write the Donation of Constantine? Why lie? Well, that that is a basic question, and it's not complicated, right? The church in the West lied because it lied in the same way anyone lies. When someone lies, what are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to either gain power or to assert control. And when we, <clears throat> excuse me, when we look into an entire church that is doing this, when you look into church leaders who are doing this or those who have power trying to protect their own power, the place to look for it is lies. Because when lies are present, that means there's something going on that is trying to either assert or gain power, right? So this, this opens up this huge question. Which one was it? 
Was it to gain power or was it to assert control? You would almost look at this and say, well, maybe, I mean, if, if, if we assumed that the control or if we assumed that the power belonged to the papacy um, from the earliest days of the church because of some mystical thing that was present with Peter, that's completely unknown to scripture. But let's just say that and also the earliest church history that we have, um, then we would have to in, in to be to be very generous with all of this, this was just a necessary evil to assert control over people that were going out of line. Um, and many Roman Catholics will say to this day that that's why this happened, that it was wrong, but it was wrong for a reason. Um, it was wrong and it was wrong with a wrong reason. It's not, it was not to assert control because the reality is that before this, the papacy was not in existence not in any meaningful sense, in anything other than an honorary primacy of the Bishop of Rome. But there was no, there was no primacy in the sense that Rome has taken to itself. There is no, the Pope says this and everyone else goes along with it. That is complete and utterly distant from any knowledge of church history before the fifth century. That does not work like that. This, this kind of idea that we have that the papacy goes all the way back uh, to to Saint Peter is is a fabrication of the office of what claims to be the successors of Saint Peter today. So in these cases, why why the lies? It wasn't to assert control because it didn't have any. It was to gain power, power that it did not already have. That is very important to remember as you start reading this, because you're going to see the power grabs. And what we're going to learn about the church of the 700s is what power the church knew it didn't have, what power the papacy knew it did not have, and yet was making a vast play at gaining it. <clears throat> now, what is the situation of the 8th century? What, what really precipitates such a thing as this? Well, one, it has been many, many years, many generations, actually, since the East and the West were allied in any meaningful sense. There had been a couple of um, councils, uh, but a lot of those, uh, you know, the Chalcedonian definitions and, and things like this weren't overly problematic to things going on in the West. These things were being held largely in the East. They were being dealt with, or they were dealing with issues in the East, especially as you go past uh, the first four ecumenical councils into the latter ones, they're really heavily dealing with issues in the, you know, Roman Empire out there in the East uh, in the five and six hundreds. Um, in the West, changes are being made <clears throat> that they're not running past those in the East. There's semantic arguments and differences and discord because in one side of the church, they speak Latin and the other side of the church, they speak Greek. Uh, and this is not exactly a day of Google Translate, so it's not it's not overly simple to solve issues like this. Um, how do you how do you solve problems across massive sections of time and se uh, sections of empire without uh, establishing something much bigger? Um, there's <coughs> excuse me. There is um, uh, inside all of this. There is the the understanding of what. It is that the church was accomplishing for itself. Um, the historical context that all of this arises out of, um, especially for the donation of Constantine, um, really shows in what it was used for. And, you know, this is a good trick. 
anytime you're trying to wonder or trying to figure out, um, you know, what in the world's going on when everything's going wrong uh, or everything is going not to plan and uh, all of a sudden you see things being spun or going in different directions than you intended, uh, quickly you can see that somebody else is in control. Maybe, maybe the confusing outcome for you is actually what was intended by somebody else. Uh, and so really it is in the outcome and what the things like the donation of Constantine and this, um, uh, the Samachian forgeries and things like that were used to bolster. Well, historically, retroactively, the donation of Constantine was used to legitimize the creation of the Papal States. Um, the Papal States was a huge section of Italy that was... Um, oh that was handed to the uh, Bishop of Rome to rule as a king. End of story. Uh, the, the sole um, monarch, if you will. These were also, these documents were also used to gain primacy over the other centers of the church, something that the ancient church knew absolutely nothing about. The idea of Rome being in charge of the whole church is utterly foreign to the first centuries of the church and to all of scripture. So when you see the primacy of Rome and the bishop claiming that he's in charge of all the other bishops, uh, simply the question has to go, where, sir, did you grab such power from? Because it's not from scripture anywhere. Even Peter calls himself a fellow elder. Um, at, nor do you find any such concept in the early church. When, when people are trying to decide things, <clears throat> when people are trying to wrestle through things, they go to the scriptures. They do not go to the Pope in Rome. End of story. Period. There's no exceptions to this. There, there is not <clears throat> somebody going, my goodness, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we have these questions of the Christian apologists, but instead of us trying to, you know, read the scriptures, how about we just go ask what the bishop in Rome thinks? No, Nobody's doing that. Now, if, if the bishop in Rome is there, just like any other bishop, like the Bishop of Smyrna or the Bishop of Antioch, you would talk to him, you would ask his input because he would be a legitimate pastor. That was his role. Um, and so when you when you look at all of these things and you start to realize that uh, a papal office has arisen and it looks so much more like a monarch or a chieftain or a warlord, than of anything like a pastor or anything like this, especially in the medieval era, my word, it just gets out of hand because there is simply nothing Christian about the office of the papacy. You can quote me on that. There is nothing Christian. There's simply nothing Christian about the office of the papacy because it doesn't have its roots in Christianity. It has its roots in medieval lordship. It has nothing to do with the pastoral responsibilities to the church. That is uh, an unfortunate side quest that it was designed to have. These documents were quoted to place in the Pope's hands the ability to arbitrate temporal disputes between rulers. When a king has a dispute with another king, these documents were there to establish that there is something much more ancient as far as for rulers in this world, and that is that they ought to be subject to the Pope in Rome. Now, for any of you who are longtime listeners, you know 
that we have walked through Boniface VIII's use of um, uh, of this type of language in uh, Unum Sanctum, um, and uh, if if you're not familiar, um, there's several other things that come out of the medieval era that specifically and directly and even by name quote these documents. For instance, the Samachian forgeries um, are quoted in Dictatus Pape. Um, you know, it, it's quoted directly. Um, we will spend uh, an episode someday on the Dictatus Pape. It's an interesting list. It's a short list. You can just go look it up. Um, really quite fascinating. But it quotes the Samachian forgeries by name specifically to bolster up the power of the Pope. They were all there to establish not only the temporal powers of the Pope, specific to the secular world, and the rulership of the papal states, which the office of the papacy was designed first and foremost to be a chieftain-type ruler of the papal states. That's why these things were being forged, uh, at least the latter ones. The earlier ones were there to forge primacy after you know the Roman Senate abandoned Rome, and so the Roman Pope filled in that, well, power, power uh, vacuum. <clears throat> but what was what they were eventually used for was to establish the ecclesiastical authority of the Pope over matters of salvation. We covered this in the episode on Unum Sanctum. The idea that outside of the Roman Church, there is no salvation. Which is the most offensive thing I think I've ever read in church history. The idea that your relationship to this completely arbitrarily made up office in the Roman Church defines your salvation is why we had a reformation to begin with it's also why we had a great schism and the entire eastern church left the pope in rome because the pope could not see past his own supposed authority now lest you think i'm exaggerating or going too far we're going to get into the text just now I want to explain there's really two halves to the donation of Constantine. The first half is the story of Constantine's salvation. All of this is made up. All of this is hagiographical. All of this is specifically there to explain why Constantine did this thing that he didn't actually do. The, the, I, the, the story includes Constantine's salvation. It includes visions. It includes that he had leprosy and he had a miraculous cure of leprosy. Uh, via baptism that the Pope um, was able to give him, and then all this gratitude to the Pope for all this, and then in response, that's why Constantine moved his uh, his capital away from Rome because you know who am I in the in the sight of such a great and grand person like a Pope? Um, that first half there, the story side of it, I'll leave to you. It's not that long. It's a few. Um, long paragraphs. You're welcome to go read it. In fact, in the in the show notes here, um, both on the live stream as well as uh, on the podcast, I've actually put a link for you to follow along the text. Um, the first part of that text of the donation of Constantine, where it starts in the name of the Holy and Indivisible Trinity, um, there that whole story <clears throat> of of how exactly. Um, those who are lying about this wanted us to think that there was legitimacy to the story. Um, that first part there, uh, you're welcome to read. I just don't have much 
um, well, speak frankly, I just no interest in reading fake history. Um, but if you are curious about why they legitimize, why they were trying to legitimize that Constantine would literally donate, uh, the Western side of the Roman empire to the Bishop of Rome. Oh yeah. By the way, if you're not familiar at all, that's what the donation of Constantine supposedly is that Constantine was so impressed, uh, with his salvation, so impressed with God and so impressed with the Pope and how great the Pope is and everything that he's just going to straight up give him the entire Western side of the Roman empire. He's just going to give it to the Pope, give it to the Bishop of Rome. <clears throat> now, what do we know about history with regards to this? Did that happen? No, that did not happen. That never happened. That's absolutely lunacy and ludicrous to even theorize that it happened. But the problem is, is that in the eighth century, when this lie was being perpetrated, there wasn't anyone to refute it again. Rome was in the east. Rome was in Constantinople. And so the legitimacy of the Roman Empire <clears throat> did not have to argue for itself because it was still existing. It was over there in the east. It was in Constantinople, Antioch, the centers of the church there in the east, and all of these things. They were all still there and functioning very well and happy. Uh, they had their own issues. They had their stuff. But that's the, the, that's the actual story of history. Here, this whole idea <clears throat> that the western side of the Roman Empire, all of the rulers should answer to uh, the church in Rome and all of this kind of stuff, that's supposedly what Constantine donated to the papacy, um, is complete, uh, just in case it's not clear, that did not happen in history. That did not actually happen. Um, this was a story made up so that the Bishop of Rome in the 800s could do certain things by establishing legitimacy to a Frankish king like Pepin. So that Pepin would donate lands to the papacy and they could increase in value, power, and wealth. It's just power grab. Oh, and Constantine also threw in that this also makes Rome in charge of all the churches everywhere in the whole world, too. Because that's something that Constantine apparently had the power to do, which is nonsense. In case you're wondering what my, uh, what my uh, opinion is with regards to uh, one of the largest lies ever perpetrated on the world, the donation of Constantine is not something I am a fan of. But here, I am a fan of learning what the effects have been and trying to undo them, which is really much of what the Reformation was necessitated to. Um, so here again, I'm not going to read the beginnings of this. You're welcome to do so. You have the link to it. Um, you can see, I'm going to have down on the bottom here, um, that the translation that we're using is actually an English translation of the German translation of the historical documents of the Middle Ages. Um, reasons for that is uh, that a lot of the studies of this, especially with the uh, critical studies of this, took place in German before they ever came to the English-speaking world, um, which is probably why you really haven't ever dealt with this if you're an English speaker. Um, and But we certainly will, because... Um, yeah, we absolutely need to. Uh, so without further ado, let's go ahead and go into what specifically did this uh, this fantasy Constantine donate 
to uh, the papacy in order to give him all the power in all the world for everyone at all times for everyone. So let's go ahead and uh, listen to this. So, um, right, uh, let's get a little running start into this. Uh, Constantine is the one supposedly writing this and going, you know, I got this cool baptism. Everything's great. Um, you can see here, uh, after the cure of my body from the squalor of leprosy, uh, I recognize that there's no other God save the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, whom the most blessed Sylvester, the Pope doth preach a Trinity in one, a unity in three. Um, for all of the gods of the nations whom I have worshiped up to this time are proved to be demons works made by the hands of men. Inasmuch as that same venerable father told to us most clearly uh, how much power in heaven and on earth he, our Savior, conferred to his apostle St. Peter. When finding him faithful, after questioning him, he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock uh, shall I build my church in the gates of hell. I don't know what's going on with the uh, letter recognition here. Shall not prevail against it. Give heed ye powerful, and incline the ear of your hearts to that which the good Lord and Master added to his disciples, saying, And I will give thee the kingdoms, uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven. Whatever thou shalt loose on earth shall also be loosed in heaven. This is very wonderful and glorious to bind and loose on earth and have it bound and loosed in heaven. Okay, so this is Constantine, um, uh, a lot of, uh, fantasy Constantine, um, uh, just spilling out regular Catholic ideas, um, supposedly. Um, and so <clears throat> this is what he says, you know, so everything's been great. Everything's awesome. I'm cured of leprosy, baptized. God's great. Everything's awesome. Um, and by the way, here's a quotation that, you know, every Catholic uses to legitimize the papacy. And, uh, by the way, that has a lot of history. It goes right back to this document too, by the way. Um, part two, and when fantasy Constantine says the blessed Sylvester preaching them, I perceive these things. And I learned that by the kindness of St. Peter himself, I had been entirely restored to health. I, together with all our satraps and the whole Senate, by the way, satraps, this is an interesting little side note here. Um, this is not an office that existed at the time of Constantine. This is this is kind of some of those um, those those historical uh, clues that the Renaissance started uncovering here is that it was literally using terms that did not exist in the 300s when Constantine lived. Um, th that kind of a term, that kind of role, uh, was a matter of a later version of the Roman Empire, not of the 300s. Um, and so things like that, when they start showing up, really clue people in to go on, wait a second, maybe we're dealing with something, uh, very, very different, um, than, you know, a true thing. I together with all our satraps and the whole Senate and the nobles and all the Roman people who are subject to the glory of our rule considered it advisable that as on earth, he meaning Peter is seen to have been constituted vicar of the Son of God, so the pontiffs, who are the representatives of that same chief of the apostles, should obtain from us and our empire the power of a supremacy greater than the earthly clemency of our imperial serenity is seen to have had conceded to it. We choosing that same prince of the apostles, or his vicars, to be our constant intercessors with God. 
and to the extent of our earthly imperial power, we decree that his holy Roman church shall be honored with veneration, and that more than our empire and earthly throne, the most sacred seat of St. Peter shall be gloriously exalted, we giving to it the imperial power and dignity of glory and vigor and honor. In case that was unclear, um, Fantasy Constantine, which I'm just going to call him, I suppose, because I do not want anyone quoting me as just saying Constantine ever legitimately did this. <clears throat> Fantasy Constantine here is is said to have been giving um, all of the uh, and and donating to uh, to them all of this imperial power that they had uh, that it should be given to the Roman Church, especially to the most sacred seat of Saint Peter. All of these things should be exalted. Imperial powers. He's going to go through the whole thing. They got to have crowns. They got to have scepters. They got to have you know robes and everything else. Which is why the Pope, when he's dressed up, looks like a king, not a pastor. All right. Second paragraph here. And we ordain and decree that he, meaning the Pope, shall have the supremacy as well over the four chief seats, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem, as also over all the churches of God in the whole world. Now, um, as a pastor of a church, uh, may I just say, uh, no, um, that's not how any of this works. That's not how anything works. You do not have... A, an emperor in the 300s, supposedly, uh, writing something and saying, hey, by the way, um, not only is all my imperial power now belonging to the pastor of Rome, but uh, also all the power of all the churches everywhere in the whole world, especially those ones in the East that aren't really listening to us very well. Now, stop for just a second and realize uh, the, the kind of uh, arrogance that it takes to write something like this. Okay. Now settle into real history. Now you have a Pope legitimizing the creation of a document such as this one, not even such as this one, this exact document. And it reveals what they knew they did not have, which is primacy over the seats of Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. And by the way, if you notice this little um, this little asterisk on Constantinople and the translator's note, at the time of the supposed date of the document, Constantinople had not been founded. Its position as a chief seat was still 200 years away. Uh, again, historical markers that were used to prove that this thing was not legitimate. Now, something that even Rome admits, yes, this was a lie. Yes, it was a forgery. You know, what of it? We're still right. Uh, the problem is, is that this document was used to argue that you were the ones that were supreme over everything. And if you take this out, it's it's the same thing as it is with all of these, the Samachian forgeries, the, the Isidorian decretals, the donation of Constantine, even the Liber Pontificalis in its earliest parts, the first five or 600 years, there's very few historians that ever look at that and say there's anything to be pulled from that that could be considered accurate. What we have here are the foundation stones of the papacy's power, and now all the foundation stones are being torn out of it and you just got the papacy hanging in the air saying, I'm right, I'm right. Don't worry about the foundation stones going away. I'm right. Look at history. 
Well, we're looking at history. It's not legitimate. And this is kind of the problem is not only was the, um, was the, uh, the secular authority, uh, the imperial authority of Rome being supposedly given to the Pope, which again shows the hand of the eighth century Pope that's legitimizing this document. He knows he does not have that kind of secular authority to do these things. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to create a forgery. That's the whole point. That's what we're learning here. That when we see something like this being created, it means it is filling in a gap that existed. The Pope wanted secular authority over kings and emperors. And so here's how you do it. You forge a document and create your authority out of whole cloth. Oh, and by the way, as long as we're creating the uh, the completely made up uh, kingly authority of the Pope, now we're just going to say now he's not even just the center of the church. He is the center of the church. It doesn't matter that for 600 years there have been, outside of Constantinople before it was made in the 300s, there have been multiple centers of the church. That is how God has always worked with his people. There's never just been one prophet. There's prophets. There's never just been one book of the Bible. There's dozens. There's not just one apostle. There's a dozen of them. The only time that there's everything all dependent on a single person, it's the person of Christ, not the Pope. And, and this, this shows the hand of the 8th century church where it is dealing with this idea that in the midst of the world that they're living in, the Pope does not have the temporal authority that it wants, and so it forges things to make that. It doesn't have the power over Alexandria and Antioch and Constantinople and Jerusalem that it thinks it should have, and so it forges a document to make that. Listen to that sentence. We ordain and decree. This is supposedly Constantine ordaining and decreeing that all these other churches, the centers, the metropolitan bishops of the world, now answer to the bishop in Rome. What are we learning? You have to forge something because he didn't have it. We ordain and decree, says Fantasy Constantine, that he shall have the supremacy. The Pope shall have the supremacy as well over the four chief seats, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem, as also over all the churches of God in all of the world. And he who for the time being shall be pontiff of that holy Roman church shall be more exalted then and chief over all the priests of the whole world. And according to his judgment, everything which is to be provided for the service of God or the stability of the faith of the Christians is to be administered. Can I just simply point out that even if Constantine ever did write such a thing, who cares? What is what 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 power did he have to do this? Well, because he was an emperor? Well, because he called Nicaea together? Because he paid for churches to be built? Because he made up tax-exempt status of, of Christian uh, buildings? Right? I, why? why? Why would he have the ability to confer to the Pope, to the Bishop of Rome, to the pastor in Rome, this kind of power? It wasn't his to give if it was legitimate. And here we also know it wasn't legitimate. Anyway, Fantasy Constantine continues. It is indeed just 
that there the holy law should have the seat of its rule, where the founder of holy laws, our Savior, told St. Peter to take the chair of the apostleship, where also sustaining the cross. Well, hang on just a second there. Um, what? There was no such description anywhere in history or in scripture where the Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, told St. Peter to take the chair of apostleship, uh, meaning this rulership in Rome. Zero. We're also sustaining the cross. He blissfully took the cup of death and appeared as imitator of his Lord and master, and that there the people should bend their necks at the confession of Christ's name, where their teacher, St. Paul the Apostle, extending his neck for Christ, was crowned with martyrdom. There, until the end, let them seek a teacher, where the holy body of the teacher lies, and they are prone and humiliated. Let them perform uh, the service of the heavenly king, God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, where the proud were accustomed to serve under the rule of an earthly king. Meanwhile, <laughs> uh, Fantasy Constantine continues, We wish all the people of all races and nations throughout the whole world to know we have constructed within our Lateran palace to the same Savior, our Lord Jesus, Lord God, Jesus Christ, a church with a baptistry from the foundations and know that we have carried on our own shoulders from its foundations, 12 baskets weighted with earth, according to the number of the apostles, which holy church we command to be spoken of, cherished, venerated, and preached of as the head and summit of all the churches in the whole world. As we have commanded throughout our other imperial decrees, we have also constructed the churches of St. Peter and St. Paul, chiefs of the apostles, which we have enriched with gold and silver, where also uh, placing their most sacred bodies with great honor, we have constructed their caskets of electrum, against which no force of the elements prevails. Now, hang on a second. Obviously, we're getting hagiographical here, um, which is, you know, holy writings uh, regarding saints. Um, <clears throat> none of that happened. Ever. Constantine did build... Uh, churches yes um there is absolutely no historical founding or indeed to this day no proof that peter is buried under this in any way in fact there's quite a lot of proof to the contrary um the the the, uh, the constructing their caskets out of electrum you know no elements prevails all this kind of stuff that it, it's just it's just made up and, and this, this is kind of one of those frustrating things. And, and you may see me a little bit more on edge teaching this than I usually am. It's because of what this was used for. And what it was used for. And then when this was determined to be a lie for all of these years, all the stuff that it was used for wasn't taken back. And it's used for things like Unum Sanctum. And it's used for things that separate between uh, centers of the church and never should have been separated. This kind of stuff, this kind of jostling for power, uh, it does nothing but destroy the church. I hate it. It drives me crazy when I see it. Um, I don't know. I don't know another way to interact with it. Uh, okay, let's keep reading here. Uh, and we have placed a cross of purest gold and precious gems on each of their caskets and fastened them with golden keys. Yeah, none of that happened. None of that exists. None of that happened. Zero 
zero corroboration, zero description contextually, zero description of it even at the same time. No. All of this is just fabrication. Um, evidenced by the fact that none of this is there today. You can see a lot of papal um, uh, tombs in Rome, but you will not see Peter and Paul because these this is this is made up. Um, Paul might be in one of the churches. Peter, no, no. Uh, on these churches for the uh, endowing of divine services, we have conferred estates and have enriched them with different objects. And through our sacred imperial decrees, we have granted them our gift of land in the east as well as in the west. And even the northern and southern coast, namely in Judea, Greece, Asia, Thrace, Africa, and Italy, various islands under this condition indeed, that all shall be administered by the hand of our most blessed father, the pontiff Sylvester, and all his successors. Now, <clears throat> that sounds extensive. It's a good thing it wasn't true. Because there is absolutely nothing in the scriptures that tell a pastor how to, uh, you know, rule half the world. How would we do that? Sometimes pastors get full-headed about themselves thinking that they're the rulers of their little town or their little community. They're not. You're not. I promise. You are, you are the pastor of the church that you are given responsibility to shepherd. You are not the pastor of a town like that. That's not even how it works anymore. One could argue it's never how it worked. For let all the people and the nations of the races in the whole world rejoice with us, we exhorting all of you to give unbounded thanks together with us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for he is God in heaven above and on earth below, who visiting us through his holy apostles made us worthy to receive the holy sacrament of baptism and health of body. Now, I, I wonder if the ink burned while they were writing this. How do you talk about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in one side of your mouth or one edge of your pen and then while you're you're doing that while you're writing one of the greatest lies ever perpetrated on humanity and that is the idea that the pope is in charge of their eternal souls and of their temporal lives and of everything else you are lying straight through your pen while praising god that is the kind of stuff that makes my blood boil i hate this kind of stuff let's keep going <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, I keep it at a low simmer as we go through this. In return for which, to those same apostles, this is what Fantasy Constantine says, in return for which, to those same holy apostles, my masters, St. Peter and St. Paul, and through them also to St. Sylvester, our father, the chief pontiff and universal pope of the city of Rome, and to all the pontiffs, his successors, a concept that did not even established anyway uh who until the end of the world shall be able to sit in the seat of saint peter we concede and by this present do confer our imperial lateran palace you know because earthly kings need palaces so that makes sense which is preferred to and ranks above all the palaces in the whole world uh then a diadem that is the crown of our own head uh and at the same time uh the tiara and also the shoulder band, that is the collar that usually surrounds our imperial neck, and also the purple mantle, and the crimson tunic, and all the imperial raiment, 
and the same rank as those presiding over the imperial cavalry, conferring also the imperial scepters, and at the same time the spears, the standards, also the banners and the different imperial ornaments, and all the advantage of our high imperial position and the glory of our power. Boy, I tell you, that last word is what it's all about. Power. That is what the godless Pope who commissioned this is after. Power. Anyone who says otherwise is covering for him and is part of this. This document was used for hundreds and hundreds of years to establish a papacy that had no legitimacy whatsoever taking the powers that it did and saying the things that it did and making the decisions that it did and imposing them on people the way it did. The scary part about this stuff is the amount of people that weren't even aware of the fact that these things were proven false. I wonder how many people are even listening to this. You're fans of church history. When have you heard about this? Outside of this class. When have you heard about these things? Right? When Martin Luther heard about the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals, that they were determined during the Reformation to actually be illegitimate, that is when he switched part of his mind from considering that Rome was just well-meaning and off-base to the Pope may actually be the Antichrist. Okay, you can see it in Luther's writings when it takes effect in his mind is, is this switch of, you've got to be kidding me. These things that were the, were the grounding of canon law were all lies? If that is the case, who is the father of lies? Good question. Let's keep going. We decree, <clears throat> this is uh, going back to false, uh, uh, excuse me, fantasy Constantine here. We decree, as to those most reverend men, the clergy who serve in different orders, that same Holy Roman Church, that they shall have the same advantage, the same distinction, the same power. There it is again. And excellence by the glory of which our most illustrious Senate is adorned. Uh, let me take this over there. Uh, is adorned. That is, they shall be made patricians and consuls. We commanding that they shall also be decorated with the other imperial dignities. And even as the imperial soldiery, uh, so we decree, shall the clergy of the Holy Roman Church be adorned. And I, even as the imperial power is adorned by different offices, by the distinction, that is, of chamberlains, of doorkeepers, all the guards, so we wish the Holy Roman Church to be adorned. And in order that the pontifical glory may shine forth more fully, we decree this also, that the clergy of this same Holy Roman Church may use saddle cloths of linen of the whitest color, namely that their horses may be adorned and so be ridden, and that as our senate uses shoes with goats' hair, so they may be distinguished by gleaming linen, in order that as the celestial beings, so the terrestrial may be adorned to the glory of God. Above all things, moreover, we give permission to that same most holy one, our father Sylvester, 
bishop of the city of Rome and pope, and to all the most blessed pontiffs who shall come after him and succeed him in all future times for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ our Lord, to receive into that great Catholic and apostolic church of God, even into the number of the monastic clergy, anyone from our Senate who in free choice of his own accord may wish to become a cleric. No one at all presuming thereby to act in a haughty manner. <laughs> I I love that that last sentence is there. What what a treasure trove um, of irony. Uh, here, this, this idea that uh, nobody's allowed to act in a haughty manner after the most insane paragraph describing how, yeah, we totally get to wear all the cool imperial garb now. Um, again... You have to wrap your head around this. This is, this is mental. You you have a pope. Let's just say right a little bit before the year eight hundred, probably about seven fifties, seven sixties. Here, a pope who wants to dress up as a king. And so, when we put this in there, where he wants to act like a king, he wants the power of a king, he wants the lands of a king, he wants the income of a king. And so, let's forge together a document. And oh, by the way, I get to dress up as a king too. Put that in there. Every every piece of this is a lie. Every piece of this is a lie to create the papacy out of nothing. It's to give legitimacy to the fact that the papacy was becoming a king. That the Pope in Rome was soon to be just another monarch. And he says, I don't want to be just another monarch, just dressed in goat hairs and stuff like this. I want the finest linen because just like the angels adorn the earth, I will adorn everybody's eyes. Remarkable stuff, man. We also decreed this. That this same venerable one... Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm continuing to read uh, Fantasy Constantine. We also decreed this, that the same venerable one, our father Sylvester, the supreme pontiff, and all the pontiffs his successors might use and bear upon their heads... Yeah, hang on a second. I, I, I bet you haven't read ahead. I, I, I'll bet you it's, it's like a hat that's meant to signify service to others, right? Is that what you're thinking? No, 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 no. Of course not. Why would we do that? All the pontiffs his successors might use and bear upon their heads to the praise of God and for the honor of St. Peter, a crown. <laughs> the diadem, that is, the crown which we have granted him from our own head of purest gold and precious gems. But he, the most holy pope, did not at all allow that crown of gold to be used over the clerical crown which he wears to the glory of St. Peter, but we placed upon his most holy head with our own hands a tiara. Ah, oh, we met halfway. Of gleaming splendor representing the glorious resurrection of our Lord and holding the bridle of his horse out of reverence for St. Peter, we performed for him the duty of groom decreeing that all the pontiffs, his successors, and they alone may use that tiara in processions. I... <clears throat> We don't know exactly which pope this was that, that wrote this or that commissioned this and approved it. And we do know that it certainly was approved uh, by the pope. Nothing like this would happen without that. Think about this for a second. And w what kind of fever dream he just described where um, the papal office or the pope of Rome was processed around Rome with a special crown 
and the horse was led by the reins by Constantine, the emperor himself leading him around. What, what of this is humility and service? What of this looks anything like Christ or anything like a Christian? Let's keep going. In imitation of our own power, in order that for that cause the supreme pontificate may not deteriorate, but may rather be adorned with power and glory even more than is the dignity of an earthly rule, behold, we, giving over to the oft-mentioned most blessed pontiff, our father Sylvester, the universal pope, as well our palace, as has been said, as also the city of Rome, and all the provinces, districts, cities of Italy, or of the western regions, and relinquishing them by our inviolable gift to the power and sway of himself or the pontiffs his successors, we do decree by this our godlike charter and imperial constitution that it shall be so arranged and do concede that they, meaning the palaces and the provinces, shall lawfully remain within the Holy Roman Church. Just let's keep going. Wherefore, we have perceived it to be fitting that our empire and the power of our kingdom should be transferred. Again, there, there's that there's that dicey little word again. Power just keeps coming up of our kingdom should be transferred and char uh, and changed to the regions of the East. Yeah, this is why Constantine supposedly moved to Constantinople. It was to get out of the way. So, you know, the Pope can have his uh, crown. Uh, and that in the province of Byzantium, in a most fitting place, a city should be built in our name, and that our empire should be there established. For where the supremacy of priests and the head, not bead, where the head of the Christian religion has been established by a heavenly ruler, it is not just that there an earthly ruler should have jurisdiction. In other words, if there is a pope, why do we need an emperor in Rome? So we're going to go ahead and leave. Now, historically, that is not why Constantine left Rome. Constantine left Rome to establish a new capital to ensure the longevity of the Roman Empire. Now, in retrospect, bad idea. It wasn't even 100 years later, the West fell. But it was more central. It was to hold the East and the West together, um, which, you know, best intentions, I suppose. We decree... Here, fantasy Constantine continues. We're coming up to the last paragraphs here. We decree, moreover, that all these things, which through this our imperial charter and through other godlike commands we have established and confirmed, shall remain uninjured and unshaken until the end of the world. So, um, bad news, France, Germany, um, Italy, uh, Spain, England, uh, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Scotland, uh, Scotland Switzerland... Uh, Austria, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you apparently live on the papal lands. So you might want to start packing up and leaving. Um, they belong to the Pope until the end of the world. Because fantasy Constantine says so. Wherefore, before the living God, who commanded us to reign, and in the face of his terrible judgment, we conjure... The, through this our imperial decree, all the emperors, our successors, and all our nobles, the satraps, the ones that don't exist in the 300s, also, and the most glorious senate, and all the people in the whole world, now and in all times previously subject to our rule, 
that no one of them in any way allow himself to oppose or disregard or in any way seize these things which by our imperial sanction have been conceded to the Holy Roman Church and to all its pontiffs. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Every time I read it, it, it just it's just astounding. Oh, if anyone, moreover, which we do not believe, prove a scorner or a despiser in this matter, he shall be subject and bound over to eternal damnation and shall feel that the holy chiefs of the apostles of God, Peter and Paul, will be opposed to him in the present and in the future life and being burned in the nethermost hell, he shall perish with the devil and all the impious. Um, bring it, dude. Seriously, that's that's my official professional response to that. Th this this so boils my blood because look look at the way look at the way that this is being put forward the person the pope who is writing this who is legitimizing this knows every bit of this is false and knows that people were too uneducated to know and he's threatening them with hell if they ever disagree with him you want to tell me to be subject to that office I think not. The page, moreover, of this, our imperial decree, we, confirming it with our own hands, did place above the venerable body of St. Peter, chief of the apostles, you know, the body that's not actually there, uh, promising, and they are promising to that same apostle of God that we should preserve inviolably uh, all its provisions and would leave in our commands to all the emperors, our successors, to preserve them. We did hand it over to be enduringly and happily possessed to our most beloved father, Sylvester, the supreme pontiff and universal pope, and through him to all the pontiffs, his successors, especially the guy who's making this up, God, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, consenting. <laughs> and the imperial subscription, may the divinity preserve you for many years, O most holy and blessed fathers. Listen to this. Given at Rome on the third day before the calends of April, our master in August, Flavius Constantine, for the fourth time, and uh, Galagano, most illustrious man, being consuls. The end. They forged the signature, they forged the name. They forged everything in order to make up the office of the Pope and to confer it powers it did not have in order to establish it as one of the strongest forces that ever existed in the church. And it went the way you would expect. Because when you found an office with power like that, that lies in order to gain power, what you're going to find is that your soul will erode. Now, why do I teach church history? I have said it dozens and dozens of times. We study church history for the same reason we fellowship with other Christians, so that we may learn wisdom from ages gone by. This is not wisdom. This is foolishness. And so here we will take our warning. 
we can take our warning both as individuals and as churches, as pastors, as leaders, as fathers and mothers, as children. Lies will erode your soul. The Roman Catholic Church has learned this the hard way, and unfortunately, that's a lesson that just doesn't stick with it. 250 years after writing this monstrosity, the Eastern Church had to separate from the Western Church because the Western Church, having changed creed and having determined things on its own authority, was asserting its authority where it didn't have any. Acting as if it was in charge of the church in the whole world, and they excommunicated the Eastern Church. More specifically, they excommunicated the Bishop of Constantinople. In response, the Eastern Church excommunicated the Pope. The supposed supreme authority of the papal office is one of the biggest intentional lies in all of church history. In fact, I do not know of a bigger one. The idea of that office being in charge of the entire church is a fabrication of that office. That office did exist. It was supposed to be a pastor. Unfortunately, it turned into a vicious king, a medieval warlord, and little else. And you will see it in the 900s. You will see it in the 1000s. The things that were happening in the papal offices are, are not even fit to describe on a, on, a, uh, on a show like this. I don't even want to read them. So many of the acts were so despicable and so disgusting. And people hear about that and they go, well, you know, how, how does that, how does that take place? How does that happen? Because when you establish your power through lies, or when you assert control over people through lies, there is no depth that you will not go to protect yourself. We see it in church history. We see it in our churches today. Now I pray that if there's anyone in, in this audience that lives by lies, don't do it. It's not worth it. It will erode your soul. See, a lot of people that still find themselves subject to the Roman pontiff for tradition or history or familiarity or whatever the, or whatever the reason is, I've had more Catholics quote things like Unum Sanctum at me, saying that my salvation not only is in question, but has no legitimacy whatsoever because I am not subject to the Roman pontiff. <clears throat> With all due respect, the Roman pontiff is not subject to Christ. I have no interest in being subject to anyone who's not subject to Christ. Here, the power is established by lies. And Christ is not the father of lies, nor is he served by lies, ever. And so if you think that somehow Christ will be honored by lies, or by things created by lies, because that somehow makes them legitimate, 
I believe we will learn many things upon entering the celestial sphere. And one of them is that lies do not serve the king of truth, even if they're well-intentioned. And in fact, I would argue, especially if they're well-intentioned. And so rather than wisdom to the positive, here we're going to take wisdom to the negative, which is warnings against foolishness. Here, foolishness on a grand scale, on a grand scale. We're not done. This is the first of four episodes that we'll be discussing these things. Tonight, the donation of Constantine. Next week, we will go back to the Samachian forgeries, and then we will look at the Liber Pontificalis, at least in the first sections. It's actually a huge document, so we're going to be only focusing on the first section. Um, and then the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals. Um, I'm going to limit each of those to one episode because if we took them all in their entirety, we would do nothing else for the rest of the year, and I don't want to do that. Uh, I do want to be able to introduce you to these things. You need to know about them. Um, they're important. And if you are a Catholic and you are here, please hear nothing but um, a desire to see truth reign in God's church. Uh, behind my frustrations and even some of my joviality with some of this stuff because it's so ludicrous. Um, it's very difficult to read these things uh, if you have your mind in the 8th century, but it is laughable to read them now, knowing what we know now, um, just to see the, the level of um, grasping for power that was going on. Uh, I pray God's peace with you all. Um, Thank you for sticking it out with me. Don't lie. Power like that will erode your soul. Lord's blessings to you all. See you next week.